available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, with a lack of temporary foreign workers, are higher food prices and fewer food choices on the horizon for Canadians? University of Calgary Research Associate Robert Faulkner has released his second report on the role of temporary foreign workers in the Canadian agriculture sector. Robert says if there was any attempt to manage the food supply without these workers, that would be a strong possibility. He will talk about his latest research project and provide some short and long-term policy solutions for the problem. Amanda Radke is a blogger and South Dakota rancher who speaks out on issues that impact the cattle industry. She recently spoke to the virtual Canadian Beef Industry Conference about fake meats, environmental and animal rights activists and finding ways to bridge the urban and rural divide. Amanda will share her strategies for connecting with consumers, ignoring the trolls, and how ranchers can be a trusted source of information. After the break, Robert Faulkner. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Robert Falconer is a research associate with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, and he's with us to discuss a paper on the lack of temporary foreign workers and its potential impact on food costs. Uh, Robert, first of all, uh, I understand that you came to this research from both a professional and a personal perspective. Well, uh, so my background, originally, mostly actually been in. in the immigration and refugee policy sphere for for the past couple of years. I uh, worked in the nonprofit sector directly with immigrants, uh, and then after completing my master's degree, I ended up uh, joining a, a position as a research associate with the School of Public Policy, and, and that's where I've lived there. But with the onset of COVID nineteen, and especially the spread of the the disease among uh, migrant farmers, decided to take a look at TFWs, and actually was asked or commissioned to write a report or several. Reports on the topic and it ended up being a bit of a, a, a fruitful uh, area for me because I actually I speak Spanish and uh, my summer job throughout high school and, and into university was actually working as a manager of, of migrant workers on BC farms uh, so I had both a, both a a research interest in the topic as well as personal experience. So that's that's how this all came about. And then the the, the third point I raised is that this particular paper uh, was not something I expected. Um, it's something that evolved, and I began to look into well, how if we're going to justify several policy responses to help migrant workers and to help producers, we should understand how we got here. And and that's how the, this particular paper evolved, which is sort of a combination of policy responses to the current pandemic as well as really a, a comprehensive history of the development of the TFW program and why we really need it for, for Canada. So this is the second report that uh, you've put together on this topic. Can you walk us through uh, the first report's findings and uh, where you plan to go from here? So part one uh, looked at the uh, drop or decline in arriving temporary foreign workers uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what we found, and we have updated numbers on this, um, was that there's been about a 14% decline in the number of TFWs coming to work in Canadian agriculture. Uh, in comparison to 2019, uh, during the first uh, during the, the, the months that we that we analyze, and that includes both primary and secondary agriculture. That so the the farms themselves as well as the food processing plants. What that means in terms of relative numbers, that's about a 14 percent decline 
uh, compared to last year. And we, we broke it down by sector. What we found is that in particular, while, while in absolute terms, uh, the primary farming has been the most impacted. In relative terms, the meat processing sector as well as the seafood se- processing sectors have, have been the most, the hardest hit, as it were. Um, and we, we basically, we, we briefly touch on the topic of producers having a difficult time uh, finding local workers to fill the gap left by TFWs and that, that the Canadian government would need to take several responses that were particular to several sectors across different provinces. So that, that was the topic of the first paper. This uh, already kind of mentioned the, the topic of the second paper, which is, again, how we got here. And we, we cover a vast transformation and really industrialization of the agricultural sector since the Second World War that has created a, a significant labor gap um, that needs to be filled by a combination of technological innovation and, and uh, as well as foreign workers. But where we expect us to go is um, we, we expect us to actually develop into a third paper, which is going to touch on the topic of what if we just turned off the taps and, and got no more TFWs here in Canada? What, what would the needed technological innovation or other capital investments, subsidies, et cetera, need to, need to be in order to maintain the same level of production in Canada? So that's where we see this going. There seems to be this misconception that Canadians who have become unemployed during the pandemic would be able to fill some of the jobs that are currently held by temporary foreign workers, but you found that it's really not that easy a flip, correct? No, and there's an interesting history here. The history that people need to understand is that end of World War II, 1946, there was about 1.2 million people working in agriculture. That number, as of 2019, was in about 280, or about 290,000 people. So, drastic decline in the total agricultural workforce. Now, what's interesting with this is that 96% of that drop—that's about a to, to put a give it put an actual number to that—that's about a 900,000 people leaving the agricultural workforce since the end of the Second World War, and 96% of those are small owners. And they're unpaid family members. These are not employees. So when we think about the the transformation of the agricultural sector, we often think, well, are TFWs replacing employees? And the answer is they're not. TFWs are replacing the departing small owners and their family members. When one farm buys out another farm, they don't get to keep the family that previously owned it. And so a producer has to either somehow increase the efficiency of his current workers, hire more workers. And if they can't do that, then they need to source the work from elsewhere. And simply put, Canadian employees haven't really been jumping to to go into the agriculture sector. That's even before the pandemic and certainly not now. Research Associate Robert Falconer is our guest, and we're discussing the implications of fewer temporary foreign workers in Canada. Robert, one point you made in the report is a possible side effect could be higher food prices, which in turn could result in poor food choices. It truly shows that uh, really it's a far-reaching impact of temporary foreign workers and uh, their effect on the Canadian economy. Yes, even before the pandemic, producers have been routinely raising wages. That's another thing that, that often doesn't get touched on enough is that it's not so much the, the story of the unscrupulous farmer. Producers have been more than willing to, to raise wages for to attract local labor. Um, and they're going to be trying to attract more with regards to the pandemic. Of course, that, when you raise wages, one thing you can do to offset that is, is higher food prices. But the other thing that we're going to see is that with fewer TFWs working on farms, uh, farmers will and actually already are beginning to cut production. 
Uh, we've seen several reports of, of farmers in British Columbia, uh, Alberta and the Red Deer area, and then now Eastern Quebec who have left food rotting in the ground, who have cut production or simply not seeded or calved as much as they would in a normal year, so because they don't have the labor costs. So you've gone to the point where actually in Ontario there's been a federal-provincial partnership that's been launched uh, with agri-insurance to actually, for the first time, a labor shortage will be covered uh, will be will be covered under the agricultural insurance scheme that we have, um, and certainly that that will uh, we are already starting to see higher than average food uh, hikes, especially in regards to meat, dairy, eggs, and I suspect is with the onset of fall uh, produce as well. So your report provided some suggested policies for government to consider uh, to deal with these labor shortages, maybe uh, run through some of the short-term and medium-term issues. Yeah, so the first things are um, in the very short term to protect the workers that we have here, uh, protect lives, and also ensure that um, in protecting lives that producers don't get shut down. We have seen this in southwestern Ontario, that when the number of cases on a farm spikes too high, you simply have to shut production down. So uh, simple steps you can do to protect lives, uh, name two really quick, is one, uh, provide, uh, provide sickness benefits under the employment insurance scheme to, to TFWs. TFWs do pay into employment insurance, but they're actually ineligible to receive it. Um, and if I'm a, a worker who is exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19, uh, I might actually very well go to work if I have a choice between losing my income that I'm supporting my family with uh, or getting better. And, and that would actually encourage a worker to stay home while also getting some level of income. And it also takes the, the weight off of producers from having to provide that income. So that's one option there. Uh, the other option I say is that, you know, there, while I expect most producers are more than willing to comply with public health guidelines, we do want to make sure that those are enforced across all farms. We suggest the CSIA become at least temporarily involved on the labor side of things, mostly because they're, they're regularly on farms anyways, testing for food safety requirements, even if they don't get, get enforcement um, so even if they don't have the power to enforce public health regulations, being able to make a referral to the relevant immigration or public health agencies might help producers comply better with those regulations. In the in the medium term, um, the the Canadian government will have to help uh, farmers invest in, in better housing for workers. We've seen a bit of this with the BC scheme. This is where the, the provinces agreed to share the cost of housing workers and hotels with producers, and that's helped certainly take a bit of the weight off producers. But I think we other options will include um, expanding the federal subsidies uh, to farmers to, to build better and more spacious housing for TFWs that can get spaced out. Reality, COVID-19 is probably going to be here for another season, at least one more season, so that's important there for the, for the medium term or allowing uh, producers to deduct the costs, the capital costs of, of building new housing from their taxes. And what about some of the long-term solutions? The, the long-term one would be providing some long-term possibility for temporary farm workers to become permanent residents in Canada. Now, that might seem like an odd uh, policy statement to make, but one thing that we're going to have to consider is that um, not the, the, the decline in temporary farm workers has somewhat to do with travel restrictions, but it also has to do with uh, workers hesitant to leave their families and leave their homes abroad to go work overseas. And Canada will need a, a way to attract long-term participation of workers in the sector. Allowing a worker to, say, fulfill a certain hour requirement 
um, say they need to fill uh, two or three seasons worth of hours uh, in order to to get permanent residency. It's sort of a, a nice way to thread the needle on giving producers, experienced workers who come back year after year, which they are right now already, but also providing workers an incentive to, let's say after again, three or four seasons of coming back to Canada, they now have the chance to apply for and, and gain permanent residency in Canada. And we just know that that's actually not an innovative solution. That's in some ways a callback to the early days of Canadian agriculture when anyone really with Ukrainian, Mennonite, Hungarian ancestry, very likely their ancestors came to Canada as, as immigrant farmers. So that, those are the, sorry, that's the short, medium, and long-term uh, policy options we give uh, for government and for producers to, to shore up the Canadian agricultural sector. Robert Falconer is a research associate with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. After the break, Amanda Radke, blogger and rancher, shares her thoughts on activists attacking the beef industry. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. South Dakota rancher and blogger Amanda Radke spoke to the virtual Canadian Beef Industry Conference. And she said speaking up has made her the target of activists. On many of my blogs, uh, when the Ellen DeGeneres letter that I wrote went viral and tens of thousands of people read it and I was on all kinds of TV stations uh, doing interviews and getting asked about that letter and what my message to this Hollywood star was, (laughs) the one comment that sticks out to me is that I was a zombie serial killer. And I was like, oh, it didn't make sense to me, but it stuck out to me because I was like a sane person or like an actual human being thinks that I'm a zombie serial killer because I eat meat and raise cattle. Um, and I've met, you know, I, I'm, I've known cattlemen my whole life and I know the salt of the earth people that we are and that people are in this industry. Uh, so it didn't really ring true to me, but I thought, oh, is that just a loony tune or is that kind of how a lot of people think? Here's another example. We were at a stock show selling bulls last winter the black hills stock show in rapid city south dakota and a guy walked by me and i was eating a cheeseburger you know a quick burger before the sale started and he looked at me and this is like a 60 year old man he looked at me he looked at my burger and he looked at my bowls and he goes "Ugh, cannibal and then he walked away and i was excuse me sir But there again, someone criticizing my character, accusing me of doing like murderous things. And it highlights what a certain sector in society thinks about consuming animal products. Another example, a new British TV show, a reality show has come out called Meat, M-E-E-T, Your Meat, M-E-A-T. And the premise of the show is they have these families who, get to raise a a cow or a chicken or a pig. And then they, uh, at the end of four weeks, they have to decide if they're going to keep that animal for a pet or if they're going to eat the animal. So imagine how that show goes. Another article came out recently that accused 4-H kids that show market steers of being cold-blooded killers. 
Uh, let's see. Oh, Joaquin Phoenix, an actor you might have heard of that's played in a few movies. Uh, he came out at an awards show and called for an end of speciesism. So much like sexism or racism, there's a certain sector of society that believes we are speciesists, which means we think humans are better than animals. Now, I'm a Christian, and so again, I believe in the divine value of humanity, and I also respect animals. Do I think that makes me a bigoted speciesist? I think not. And yet, that's what the activists are pushing forward. Amanda said many people argue animal welfare is the reason that we shouldn't eat meat, but she said that thinking is now ingrained in popular culture and needs to be addressed. Uh, there's another group, an animal rights activist group, and they act like domestic terrorists in the United States. And I wouldn't be surprised if they headed across the border into Canada for some of these shenanigans. But they use drones uh, to spy on farmers and ranchers. And they've taken it a step further by creating a new campaign called Project Counterglow. And what Project Counterglow does is it identifies the location and what kind of livestock are um, living at this location of these farming facilities. So it might be a hog barn or a feedlot or a poultry facility. And then they encourage their members and their supporters to create a paper trail of abuse for these locations. So they encourage their members to break in and take photos or videos or to stalk these, these producers and then tag them to this map. So that they can build a case of abuse to ultimately shut down your farm. And I went and looked on there, and yes, many of my neighbors were on the map. Uh, in fact, it was kind of a scary thing last fall. I did an interview with a college kid. Uh, he was a, a vegan activist, and he wanted to know if I thought it was right um, to have these egg-gag laws here in the United States, which prohibits activists who often go undercover and gain employment at agricultural operations in order to capture some type of abuse or even create the abuse and then videotape it and then release it to the media. And so I did this interview and was answering his questions from a rancher's perspective. And the very next day, there was a drone flying in my backyard. I called all the neighbors, hoping it was one of them flying this drone, and everyone denied it. And I don't mean to sound paranoid, but knowing that this is one of the tactics that animal rights activists utilize, it was definitely pause for concern. <laughs> now here in the United States, it is illegal to shoot down a drone because I often, when I tell that story, uh, producers will tell me, well, just shoot it down and you're all right. Well, that is damaging private property, FYI. Uh, and you're kind of a sitting duck. You're vulnerable because you can't identify who's flying it. You don't know what kind of footage they're capturing or what their intent is with this footage. And here's the part in my speech where I encourage you to check out the drone laws in your community and figure out what your rights are, um, what your right to privacy is, and if you don't think they're adequate, it's time to call your elected officials and ask them to do more to protect you as a private property owner um, on your own residence. 
Amanda Radke, rancher and blogger, talking about the challenges of the beef industry. And she spoke to the recent beef conference about animal welfare and how ranchers can play a role in easing concerns from the public about how the animals raised for meat are treated. Uh, so another thing I think about when it comes to animal welfare is this notion that animal death is only involved if you're eating a cheeseburger or a steak. And I remind people often that every diet, no matter what it is, whether it's a steak or a salad, uh, involves some level of animal death. So whether you're eating something that was grown in a field where plowing was required, which displaces wildlife and, and you know, runs over nests or whatever it might be or if it's a it's a hog or or a steer um animals live and animals die but if we're nourishing humanity it makes sense and it's it's okay and it but that is a very hard pill to swallow if you didn't grow up in agriculture if you haven't seen the circle of life if you haven't followed it from beginning to end um, especially when we have this Disney effect um, so this is one I continually test out and try different approaches to make people feel less guilty about an animal having to die in order for them to eat and yet I think the best way that we can tackle this conversation is by being as transparent as possible by having these open conversations and by getting people back on the farm in any way possible whether it's farm tours or you know virtual tours now and and showing them what it's like and so that they can feel more connected to the foods that they're putting on their dinner plate. And Amanda said ranchers need to speak up and use the tools available to them, especially social media, and share their opinions in a respectful manner. So often in agriculture, when someone asks us a question about what we do or, um, you know, why we do what we do, we either respond in two ways. We either get defensive and mad because let's face it, we have been on the defense for years trying to defend what we do and have this science-backed information to validate what we do and our best practices. And, you know, it's frustrating for sure. So we get defensive or we laugh at them and we don't take their comments seriously. And we think, oh, you naive little consumer. You don't know where your food comes from. How dumb are you? Now, neither of these responses are productive at all. They don't lend themselves to sharing factual information. They're not kind. They don't build relationships. And so I encourage folks to listen first, to hear what my concern was as a consumer in the dairy aisle, and to bridge the gap with my own personal story and some facts to go with it. So, hey, I hear you're concerned about the environment, and I am too. And here's what my family is doing on our dairy operation to take care of the land and provide you with nutritious milk that you can enjoy. Uh, so... That's that's uh, one thing I think about when it comes to being an advocate and getting on social media. You know, we can focus on uh, fighting with these trolls or these activists or, um, you know, these people that just live to get in arguments on the Internet. Or we can focus with leading with kindness and facts, sharing our story, being open to talk to the 95 percent of folks who just genuinely want to learn more about where their food comes from. 
and kind of ignoring the rest. And so when I'm thinking about that, um, I guess that's my best advice. I, I used to think I had to win all the internet arguments and talk to the trolls and convince them of my point of view. And now my new policy is I don't feed the trolls at all because that's exactly what they're looking for. They're looking for validation. The only reason they're commenting on your posts is because they know you're doing something right and they want to silence your voice as a producer. They don't want you sharing your story and so that if they can bully you, if they can engage with you enough to make you look bad or to make you sad or to make you um, go quiet for a while, that's winning and they'll work in packs. Amanda added that ranchers need to be transparent, be willing to answer questions, and that starts with explaining that ranchers are also consumers that care about the food they eat. We've got to stand up for this beef cattle industry. It's a great way to raise nutritious food. It's a great way to utilize our natural resources and upcycle inedible, hum uh, inedible to human products like cellulosic materials, including grass, corn stalks, and other feedstuffs that only cows can convert into nutrient-dense products that we can eat. And we've need, we need to work hard to develop these relationships with our consumers so they can be as passionate about beef as we are. South Dakota rancher and blogger Amanda Radke. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for August 24, 2020. Canadian cattle herd numbers are lower again. Statistics Canada said there were 12.2 million head on July 1st, or 0.5% below the total from one year earlier. The federal agency reports the decline would have been even larger if it were not for COVID-19. Processing was reduced this spring as several hundred employees were sick at two major beef packing plants in Alberta. Canadian cattle inventories have declined every year since 2005 and are now 27.5% below the peak recorded during the BSC crisis. Canadian wheat prices were under pressure with news of a possible bumper crop. The Sask Wheat Market Outlook said that wheat prices in Russia increased marginally, even with the crop expected to be the second largest on record. Canadian wheat export shipments in the new crop year were off to a good start at 424,000 tonnes. Another agriculture event will not be held in the new year due to the pandemic. Organizers of FarmTech said the decision to cancel the conference scheduled for January 26th and 28th was made to ensure the safety of attendees, speakers and sponsors. The FarmTech Foundation is comprised of Alberta Wheat and Barley Commissions, Alberta Canola, Alberta Pulse Growers and Alberta Seed Growers Association. With the uncertainties surrounding the pandemic, the Saskatchewan Association of Rural Municipalities has decided to host the first-ever digital convention in 2021. SARM President Ray Orb said moving to an online event was to ensure the health and safety of the roughly 2,300 delegates. He said COVID-19 has highlighted the problems with rural broadband, and SARM will work with the RMs in advance to ensure a positive digital experience. Well, it's a fine line for farmers near the Quill Lakes in central Saskatchewan. A wet year can create flooding issues, but it's not good if it's too dry either. 
Farmer Dwight Odeline said lake levels have actually dropped by about six inches and some of the flooded farmland is back in production, but the results have been disappointing so far. Odeline said on the flip side, some crops could have used more rain. Glencore Agriculture is rebranding its business to Viterra in late 2020. Glencore will unite its agriculture operations under the Canadian-based grain business. Glencore Agriculture CEO David Matiski said for 40 years, the company invested in the business to create one of the world's leading agriculture networks. He says the transition will happen over the next few months and it will be business as usual for employees and customers. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.